You often hear people saying how hard it is to make Aliyah, the move to Israel. Is it really as hard as people say? What are the ins and outs? We're going to speak to an expert, someone who helps families make the move. We had tons of questions. I did this episode with my partner in crime, Zevi Wallman. It's our first Zoom-like interview, but we worked on the audio. It's a crystal clear interview, I hope. And I think you'll come out a lot smarter and more educated to maybe consider making the big move overseas to our holy land. Enjoy this week's episode. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Welcome to an episode of Kosher Money. We're going international here. We're heading out to Israel. Yaakov, what city are you based in? I am based in Beit Shemesh, specifically Ramat Beit Shemesh. Ramat Beit Shemesh. Okay, so this episode is different. I say that for every episode because they are all different, but we're having a conversation about the move to Eretz Israel, the move to Israel, and we have co-hosting this episode, the great Zevi Wallman based in Baltimore, hasn't made his move to Israel just yet. And Jakob, we want to learn about who you are, what choices you've made in life that that have led you to where you are, and then we'll get into the whole Aliyah. Did I pronounce it right, Zevi? You did. That was excellent. Well done. Okay. I'll butcher it uh, next time I talk about it. But Jakob, tell us about who you are, um, why we're having you on a podcast, and we'll go from there. Sure. Thanks a lot. I'm very, uh, very happy to be here on this uh, podcast. I really like uh, a lot of the stuff you guys have put out. Um, I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, where I lived until uh, most way to high school. And then at some point in the middle, I actually came to Israel for a couple of years uh, to study. I was here for several years. I went to Yeshiva University, where I majored in economics. And then from there, after I, I finished YU, I did learn for Samifa there also. We, we lived in Fairf. My wife and I lived in Fairlawn, New Jersey, for a couple of years until we until we made Aliyah um, in 2014. So almost uh, eight and a half or nine years ago. I've always also had an interest in finance since I was quite young, and now I've been working in finance for several years. For a while, I was managing money on my own. I had my own small fund and managed accounts. But now, what I've been doing here in Israel for the last four or five years working in Israel in finance, helping Olim pre, during, or post Aliyah with their finances, with their financial planning uh, as a consultant, as an investment manager, and helping people through the process as far as the uh, financial aspects work on and part of moving internationally anywhere, but specifically to Israel, usually from America. And I work for a company called Lubitsky Financial, which has been doing that for many years, trying to help people make that move. Can you just talk about for a minute, I'm curious, how has making Aliyah impacted your family, your kids? Um, you know, we'll get, we'll get into some more of the details about it, the education system a little later, but just curious personally, like how did that, how did that impact you? So it's definitely, it's a big move. Uh, it's a big move on a lot of levels. And it's really, it's not all about the finances. There's a lot just practically, culturally, spiritually, that uh, it's, it's a very different place, a very special place. So thank God, you know, we come from, you know, Orthodox Jewish families. We've always had a strong sense of connection and identity, but being here is is very different. And 
you know, we'll get to some of the details later, but even just a, a very superficial reading, for instance, of Tanakh or of Torah, to see this was the place, this is, you know, from beginning to end, this was, this country, this land was a, you know, a major gift and a major goal and the major, the significant parts of Jewish history always have happened, are happening, and will continue to happen here. So this big year, it, it also helps because there are sacrifices you have to make uh, being here, uh, some of the conveniences, and some of them are, are just, just practical the things, especially people coming from America or from other other countries that have some similar, you know, Western, you know, sensibilities or things. It's a little bit, uh, there are challenges, but it's overall been, you know, impacted our family, you know, very positively. We have, uh, you know, five children that are so far doing very well here, thank God. And uh, yeah, again, it's a big move, but it's the difference between being in the stands and being, I mean, with no offense to you guys, and being on the field. And it's harder to be on the field sometimes, but it's also much more, you know, meaningful experience being part of that part of history. And just uh, I'll add also, it's, you know, great, you know, as you go through the year here, you know, the, the country is run on more or less a Jewish calendar. And that's just as practical things like that, where, you know, all the Sagu sort of, take over the whole country and it, it, it's, it's different than when you live in a country that doesn't run like that and you have to kind of navigate your priorities with what the rest of the country does. So it's really had a lot of, uh, a lot of positive impact on our family. Thank God. What are the ages of your children? Or at least when you moved, what, what were the ages? Okay. So when we moved, uh, eight and a half years ago, I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old and now, uh, four and a half, two and a half, something like that. So now that now they range from two to 13. We have one that just turned 13 a while ago, and the youngest is two. And uh, in the middle, we have a 13, six, and a four. I spoke to a rabbi once, and, and he had lived in Israel when he first got married, and then he moved back after five or so years. And he said that American families moving to Israel, that culture shock where his boys were starting to get older, and it was like he had to make that decision between staying and going, where... He and he didn't have the data to back this up, but there's always that one child whose personality or there tends to be a child whose personality doesn't work well with the move to Israel and doesn't fit into the system and falls out of Yiddishkeit a little bit. Can we talk about that? Is that something that's few and far between? Is there are there ways to, to deal with that? Assuming that the people that we're addressing right now have children that are in that age where they're impressionable and, and they might have a challenge fitting in. Yeah, sure. It's a really uh, important topic. It's one that a lot of families have struggled with as they decide if they're going to move here, when they're going to move here. And there used to be some very common guidance that a lot of, you know, either rabbis or, or mentors would tell people, you know, after a certain age, uh, don't move here, you know, your kids, and it'll be too hard for them to adjust. I'm not sure it's still as concrete. I don't know what the cutoff was, but uh, you definitely see families now coming, even with older kids. Um, but it's a real issue to navigate, you know, both for children themselves, the cultural, the, the videos moving into a new place, a new language, a new system, not just of school, but the whole culture is different. And there's kind of sensitivities that, you know, parents who grew up in America have to learn to relate to the children. Let's say like, we had more children a year and, you know, they're growing up here. So they grow up in an English speaking home. And, you know, where we live particularly, there's a lot of Americans. So they do get a lot of pieces of American culture also. But it's, uh, it's something, you know, as more and more Americans move here, 
So you pick up more and more of the culture and hopefully it becomes a little easier as everyone navigates it together. But it really is, there's no, I don't think there's any insurance policy or any silver bullet that anyone has that makes everything easy. Uh, thank God there are organizations that, that really have been developed specifically to address the needs that you are, that you're mentioning here in Arapa Shemesh, there are some and you shall in Jerusalem, there are some in other places also that, uh, that try to help. And there's no, there's no algorithm that tells you exactly how to do it, but there are a lot of people who have done it and done it well. But like you said, there's always, always anything could come up. It could be challenging for any, you know, for any family, for any children. And it's, there's, there's no, uh, it was no easy answer, but as time goes on, hopefully more and more, you know, there are solutions and systems that, that help everyone. What we're seeing here at Kosher Money is life is getting more expensive in the United States for Orthodox families, whether it's real estate costs, the cost of tuition, the cost of food, inflation, et cetera. People are looking for places to go. And we definitely plan on focusing on out-of-town communities in the United States in future episodes. But Israel seems to be coming up more and more as a topic of conversation and a question that people are asking. And I guess my question for you, first of all, part one to this question is, are you seeing more people moving now to Israel in sort of post-COVID, um, let's say post-2020, 2021, than you were in 2017, 18, or 19? You do have to remember also that Aliyah in general, North America is actually a relatively small part of it. So as we look at the official statistics, so a lot of it is actually, you know, from Russia, from Ukraine, uh, there were years over the past several years where there was a very significant waves of French Olim, you know, as there are different things going on in France. Uh, but they keep coming and they keep coming more. The Nefesh Benefesh puts out the statistics when they come, you know, where people are coming from, when they're going to. I've tried to get even more and hopefully I'll be able to send you some specific examples, but the general trend is certainly up. Now, is that even from part two of this is, 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 is more of a curiosity is traditionally sort of the modern Orthodox community in the United States has really idealized Aliyah. And in many cases, I think in, in Baltimore, we have a few shuls that they call themselves a victim of their own success because they lose members, you know, at, at a relatively rapid clip um, from people making Aliyah. Are we seeing more Aliyah now from more, let's say, centrist or center-right uh, on the spectrum as well? Or is it still mostly sort of the modern Orthodox community that's driving the numbers? Yeah, so it's a good question. I'm curious if there are actual statistics, though, so I've tried. I can tell you that anecdotally, a couple of things, at least from what I see here in the Beit Shemesh community, there certainly has been an uptick, you know, as opposed to maybe when we moved here, hearing of someone making Aliyah from Lakewood or certain parts of Brooklyn or Muncie was like, you know, finding a needle in a haystack. But, but now, thankfully, there are I think many families, I don't know exactly their statistical significance, but really I do think it's a lot. And at the same time, you see in the school systems, a lot of the schools that have, there's a lot of new schools, the schools are changing and evolving and some of what, you know, maybe was once established as more Israeli schools have more Americans in it, but even in the more, let's say, for back, lack of a better word, Haredi school systems. So there are more and more new families coming in, which... We're not strictly speaking in that modern Orthodox stories here, they would call it the Dead Sea Lumi world. So I do think there's some, I hope we can get some actual statistics. I'm not sure how they'd be able to measure it exactly, but I definitely think there's uh, an uptick, which is great because, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the land was given to all. It wasn't, you know, dedicated to the modern Orthodox. So uh, hopefully we'll continue seeing that trend. Yaakov, where are people moving, right? If, if I wanted to lure my wife into this decision, 
you know, I tell her like, there's a beautiful community in a lot and it's going to, the weather is going to be great. Do people actually move to spas communities near Yamamela or are we talking here when people move to Eretz Yisrael, it's generally Yerushalayim and, and the areas surrounding that, especially American families. There are real pushes. Uh, Nevish Benefit campaigns go south and go north to try to get people to move to places, you know, in Beersheba or in the Galil or in Haifa. Uh, now, currently, there's even been a push for a community in Afula, which is, you know, it's been developed a lot in the Israeli community, and they've made a push for, for families from North America to come there also. That being said, there still are certain cities that just remain much more popular. Like you mentioned, Jerusalem, Beit Shemesh has been very popular for many years as a destination for American families, English-speaking families. There's also Netanya has been somewhat, a lot of French women also have moved there. Renana, Tel Aviv has had a somewhat of a resurgence, even with Orthodox families, young families especially. Uh, very expensive to move there, but there have they have a little bit of a resurgence. So. They have been moving all over. Nefesh Nefesh is, you know, and they work closely with the government. And they try. And, and some of it is, comes back to affordability also as more and more families come. You know, it's a small country. Supply and demand is a real thing. And real estate gets expensive. So like Zevi, you mentioned earlier, some families might be looking because things get expensive in America. So we could talk about some of the differences in the cost of living. But Housing, unfortunately, is one where, you know, people are not coming here to find cheap real estate, at least in the cities that, you know, the LA that he mentioned. So, but there are places to go and it's worth looking, but the ones you mentioned, the Chemish especially, and Jerusalem, those are, those have been the popular ones. Modi'in also is more. So you talked about, you know, why people come and the costs of living. So can you draw us a picture of how the cost of living in Israel compares to the cost of living in the U.S.? What's cheaper? What's more expensive? Broad strokes, and then maybe we can get into some of the details. It depends on where you're coming from and where you're going to. So I mentioned, you know, I'm from, I'm from Memphis, but then I lived in you know, New York, New Jersey for a while. The real estate prices, believe it or not, are very different in those communities. And when you come here, there's a significant difference if you go to Beit Shevis or Yushalayim versus Afula, you know, or somewhere like that. But some of the major differences, uh, just high level, you have housing, cars, and transportation in general, cars specifically, tuition, and healthcare. Which, like you said, each kind of deserves its own conversation or its own, you know, analysis of focus. But housing is just, it's gotten very expensive here. And if you look at the charts of price of real estate in Israel in general, it almost, almost seems to never go down. Maybe it plateaus a little bit every now and then. And it's, it's hard to understand. And on the one hand, it's a small country and there's a lot of people coming, you know, that want to live here. So you understand where there's supply and demand. But on the other hand, some of the prices just don't make sense, and it, they keep per foot or per square beer. As we look in here, it, it really, many cities have gotten very expensive. Interestingly, renting uh, is not really as bad. As much as the values are very, very high here in many cities, renting as a percentage of value really has stayed pretty low. The way it's done, it requires its own discussion, but that's one of the things where, depending where you're coming from, it could be the same as many expensive neighborhoods in America, and it could be a lot more than where you're coming from. And you could also sometimes get a lot less for what you're paying. But that's one area where here it's expensive. So housing, and I would say cars also are very expensive here. Cars are expensive. There's a lot of import tax and value end tax. And there are certain benefits you get as an OLED, that you get certain discounts. There's a lot of benefits that the government gives to new immigrants in the financial area in terms of various tax credits. And one of them is for importing cars. 
But in general, cars are expensive. Buying them, taking care of them, feeding them, and gas is very expensive here. And many, many families who would have had two cars without even thinking in America, whether they were leasing or they just owned a minivan and another sedan, whatever it was, they're mostly going to do it with max one here. So it's a lifestyle issue and it's an expense issue with something that's more. But on the other hand, you really do have things like tuition and healthcare, which are generally much, much cheaper here. And healthcare, I mean, it's socialized medicine, so it's very different. There's coupotfolie. You have, you know, you have. It's got some English word for that, or what it is. The health, the healthcare, uh, you know, this, the healthcare system. You choose one of the systems that you go to, and it's very inexpensive in terms of your monthly premiums and doctors' visits in general. There are limitations. It is socialized medicine, and many, many people have, or probably should have, some type of supplemental private insurance. But even with that. It's usually much less expensive than healthcare in general in America. And yeah, there are limits to the system here, but uh, I think most people get the care they need. They have access to care and it's generally less expensive. That being said, which we will talk about more also, there are healthcare taxes. I mean, there's something called the Mas Perduc, part of the payroll tax that you pay here is dedicated to funding healthcare system. So the more you earn, the more you're paying. But but as a as a general rule, it is much less expensive than it is in the U.S. for sure. I would say some other countries also have socialized medicine, but tuition is another really big one. I think if you compare day school, high school, college tuition in Israel to what most people pay in America, even in cheaper places and out of town, you know, it's going to come out much less expensive here. And again, we could talk about it separately, give it its own attention, but it's a couple of hundred shekels a month. We've talked about, you know, maybe, maybe a few thousand dollars a year, even if you include, you know, Opan when you move here and you want to get more trading for stimulus and language, or if you have private tutors, but even with all of that, it's generally a lot, a lot cheaper. And as you go you know, older, so high school may be more expensive here, but it's a lot more expensive there. So, you know, this is one of the things where I think uh, it's a lot less expensive here. The one thing that's probably hidden in all this is not an out-of-pocket expense, but tax is kind of a hidden expense of living here that really is a lot more. It's a lot higher. You know, like America, it's, it, you know, it's not a flat tax, so it's a graduated, you know, tax system where it goes up the more you earn. The difference is that here it really goes up a lot faster. So if you have someone who's you know, just starting to make, you know, exactly how much their cost of living is depends on the family. But as you get into, you know, someone let's say take a number in America around number of $100,000. So a family earning $100,000, you're not really getting into the high tax brackets. But once you're earning that here, the system works differently. You could really already be to the mid 20s, 30s the percent of your income. So every additional dollar of income, yeah, you'll lose a big chunk of it. And that's a little bit of a hidden expense. So yeah, people feel it. It's not hidden when you're here, feel it, but it's not as easy to lay out as saying, you know, oh, yeah, healthcare tuition or less and housing and cars are more. So uh, yeah, for different families, it'll end up being, you know, some of them will have a lot less expensive cost of living here, but some will have comparable. It really depends on their income, where they're coming from and what their tuition looks like and things like that. What percentage of people are moving into houses versus apartments? And what I, I suppose the difference between a house and an apartment is two, three bedrooms and an apartment, not to say that a house can also not be three bedrooms, but I suppose in America, right, the, the look of the structure, the detachment of not having other people living in this in the same building. Zevi, would you say that's a good classification of, a, of the difference between the two? Absolutely. Right. It's not that it's not that there's a garage in the house and, you know, there's a pool 
but but just fundamentally the the difference in in, in structure are most people moving into homes because to me making aliyah thinking about ramat beit shemesh it's apartment buildings nice apartment buildings stacked on top of the other yeah so it's uh it's an important point can't hide it you know people need to know when they come here finding those standalone houses is going to be hard in the cities that are popular to go to to jerusalem to beit shemesh to renana if you find that they do exist but it'll be a fortune of money and even if you have your own fully, you know, separate detached house, it's not necessarily coming with an acre of land. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, there's, there's less land to go around here. That's the bottom line. So that being the case, I think most people are in something that's attached to someone else. And whether it's a semi-attached home, you know, or whether it's a type of duplex work, it's not the same as an apartment building. You know, at one point I lived in Washington Heights and had, you know, a big apartment building and everyone's going up in the, in the elevator or the staircase and hallways. So a lot of the buildings here don't have apartments with separate entrances. And some of that believe it have their own garden and, and you have their own sukkah. Like it could be a little more private and independent, but at the end of the day, they're attached. And it sometimes it can feel a little bit all over, you know, all over each other. And it's a little bit of a trick to find the right balance where, you know, you're looking for more independence, more privacy, more space, but yet most people still have a budget. And so that makes it a little complicated. But the further out you go, move to Yishuv, and we'll shopping you somewhere out of one of the big cities. You know, there are places you can find houses, but then uh, you got to find schools. So just out of curiosity though, so you, you mentioned sort of a lot of things. And if I was listening to this, and I, I am listening to this for the first time, as you're saying it, I'm confused in terms of big picture, like if somebody wants to move to Israel, and like you said, I think you said it really well, they want to be on the field instead of in the stands. And I think it's a really, you know, it, it, it's a really sharp way of putting it. So big picture, can somebody who's making, let's say, and we'll talk about remote work and getting jobs and all that in a minute, but let's say somebody could make the same amount of money in, in, in Israel and the same amount of money in the United States, they could work remotely, whatever it is. Is it realistic when, when it all balances out, some things are more expensive here, some things are more expensive there? When it all balances out at the end of the day, can somebody sort of make it work? Can they make it work in some ways, find it easier to make it work because of lower costs, like big picture, positive? So we made an important uh, qualification there. If they're really keeping their job and they're, so to speak, American salary, I do think the American salaries, which are typically much higher than the Israeli salaries, typically, not, we'll, we'll talk about different industries where here, you know, there may be a lot of opportunity, but American salary could go a long way here. But there's a lot to understand about how the employment system here works and how the tax system here works. One person could be working for an American employer, and technically, if they're working here, if they're actually physically here, you know, they need to be reporting that income. And there is, there are tax treaties that you know make it that you don't have to pay double tax. Thank God, things like that. But it really depends how you do it. If someone has, you know, a significant American salary, I mean, I'm not talking about someone who's super wealthy. I think a lot of times those situations are actually the ones that that financially will be able to to make it here a little easier. That being said, there's a lot of other considerations. If you're working American hours, you know, that that changes your day. To some people, it changes in a very positive way where they have their own mornings to do other things. But then their afternoons and evenings, you know, are, you know, they're working. And that's, you know, depending on their family and their situation, that can be complicated. But I do think American salaries do go a long way. They just have to be mindful of the fact that when you live in one currency and earn in another one, so you're also subject to foreign exchange, you know, the, the fluctuations in currency. That's also, you know, because someone trying to live on a budget and things like that, 
you know, but it also, again, it, 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 it still depends, like we said before, on some of those major categories. Because if a person wants to come here on the American salary, but they're coming from a place where housing is inexpensive and they want the same size house here in an expensive city or they want two cars, it's a little tricky. So it's hard to do it two broad strokes. But in general, and like I said, we could talk about it separately, but remote work has, I think, I think we have seen an uptick. I, I, I can't find if someone has good statistics on this, but I think we've seen an uptick. And you see it based on even just the ads here and the companies that focus on outsourcing to Israel and different solutions people have to navigate various questions about tax and practicality in terms of when you're working for a foreign employer. There's there's a lot of industry, a lot of a lot of organizations that have come up to deal with it. So I think you have an uptick and then I guess to to come back to your real question. I think it, on those American salaries, you have an edge of over what a lot of people are doing this show, but there's a lot of details that really have to be paid attention to. So, you know, that uh, requires some planning and specific catering to situations. I was talking to a friend this morning, he's a lawyer, and I said, oh, I'm doing an episode on helping people understand the decisions and the numbers behind moving to Israel. And he says, it would never work for me. I said, why not? He goes, I'm a lawyer. So there's no work for me in Israel. I'm not a lawyer in in Israel. I said, yeah, but you can work remotely. He goes, fine. Let's let's assume that I'm able to work remotely. Now I'm working 4 p.m. to midnight. If he's lucky, midnight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What type of quality of life is that? So so what percentage of those you know rough number those working remotely are working American hours, or you can also work remote depending on the job. And, and keep a, a nine to five Israel time. I, I do think there's certain industries and so the way certain firms work, whether it's law, accounting, you know, the more you're part of a team and the more that you need to be awake and around when the client needs you or your manager needs you or your employees need you. So those are going to really have to be, you know, doing things when it's American hours. Same thing with, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of companies that will outsource various parts of their billing and those are all going to be. So I don't have numbers of what percentage it is, but on the types of the job, you know, there's many, but there also are lawyers. I mean, I know lawyers who their firms want someone that's, you know, going to be able to prepare stuff. You know, it's bad enough they keep their local employees working till one or two in the morning, but then they have someone here who's working till they wake up there and you could turn around more documents and more contracts and more things like that. So there's, there's a mix. And there are certain types of jobs that also just don't need to be at the same time. And so, you know, if you need to, to build, you know, to be talking to people to, to build that resort, then you need to be awake. But there are a lot of other jobs where they're doing paperwork or back office stuff or bookkeeping. And a lot of that could be done in a regular, you know, in a regular Israeli hour. So not the exact numbers, but I, you know, I see people in all industries, I see people, whether they're friends, whether they're clients or just people I hear about. And a lot of them do each one. And some have a hybrid and, you know, some get nailed because they have to kind of like work Sundays and Fridays and some manage to take off both, you know, because here we don't, you know, most people are not working Fridays and there I think most people still don't work Sundays. I just think it's, it's every case is pretty custom in, uh, in, in the remote work world. Quick break from this week's episode. Shmuel Shaiwitz in the house yet again, moving to Israel, right? It's a loaded question. A lot of people, especially in your community, are considering it, have done it. What tips do you have for those that are considering the move to the Holy Land? Well, first and foremost, I highly recommend it. Are you going to put your money where your mouth is? You're going to do it? God willing, God willing, one day. It's part of the uh, short-term, long-term plan. There's a huge difference between financing in Israel, buying real estate in Israel, than it is in America. So for a lot of people who, most of the people at least that I speak to, although not everybody, they own a home in America, and they've owned a home maybe one or once or twice, 
and the process will be different in Israel. So they definitely should be mindful of that going in there. And a lot of people will often call me up and ask whether I do real estate or, or mortgages in Israel. I can definitely help them. And I would love to help them because I would love nothing more than helping somebody make Aliyah. But at the same time, I have a network and I have resources of people that I can connect them to. The financing, the rates and terms are different. The way they're structured are different. Working with a realtor is different there than it is here, and they should know the difference and the nuance. The attorneys are paid differently, and they do different jobs. And even transferring money and knowing when to transfer money and whom to transfer the money to, that in of itself could be a, a matter of losing a couple of dollars or gaining a couple of dollars in interest. Or shackles. Or in shackles, correct. I would highly recommend that somebody who's thinking about a short-term or long-term Reach out to somebody like me or somebody who knows real estate and finance here and abroad. And first and foremost, see what the process should be. A lot of people think they need to sell here first in order to buy. Some people think they should be getting a home equity and that's the best route or the best strategy. Um, bridge loans are available. There's a lot of different creative financing. And even more importantly, it's a very personalized experience. So. It could be a three-month thing, a six-month thing where somebody just has the the itch and they want to play it out. And I'm very comfortable being that sounding board and being that uh, person whose brain you can pick just to see if your thought process is right, if you're um, thinking in the right direction, and even to connect you to people in Israel who I've had a great relationship with that can help them anywhere from find the property, finance the property, and uh, maximize their money. Love it. I want to talk to you after this. Approvedfunding.com slash kosher money. Click on the contact tab there, get in touch with Shmuel, pick his brain, tap into his Rolodex, and now back to this week's episode. Ellie and I both run businesses. And, you know, if, if at the end of this podcast you convince us that uh, making Aliyah is a good idea, and Ellie and I decide to, uh, you know, go home and inform our wives 10 days before Pesach that they can stop Pesach cleaning, and we make Aliyah. So if I have a business, let's say that's right now, mine is based in Maryland, I'm assuming Ellie's is based in New York for tax purposes, and we move with our families to Israel, leaving our businesses behind, but still working remotely. If I'm a business owner, does the, am I now paying tax in Israel because I live there, or am I, can I still pay tax in Maryland and then sort of like, and then use a, a tax treaty? And I know it sounds like a, 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 a niche question, but I feel like for every business owner, this is like a, a really important one. Yeah, it is, and there are a lot of details, so it's hard to do with broad strokes, but it's an important question, really worth talking about. It's important to differentiate also between what stage a person is in. Specifically, during your first 10 years of Aliyah, there are actually a lot of tax benefits. They don't give you a you know free pass from all tax in Israel, but they do give a lot of a lot of benefits that people should know about. It's primarily for passive income, but for some of them as a business, you kind of have to think of that business. You know, a business is a separate legal entity. So if a person is doing their work, and it's, it's different, it depends how much you travel, it depends what exactly the nature of the business is and what's happening there and what's really happening here. A lot of careful planning and attention and research should be done before you move and make sure you're optimizing it. But the bottom line is if you're sitting here physically doing your work from here, so certainly the way I understand the laws and obviously, you know, before someone makes these decisions, they'll speak to their own, you know, lawyer and accountants, et cetera. But the work you do here, the pay that you earn as the owner, as the CEO or you know manager of the company, that is subject to Israel tax also. But because of the treaty, you don't really have to worry about pay both, but you do have to 
worry about paying the higher one usually. It's exactly how it's done. You have to work out with accountants or, and we could spend time talking about it, but the business itself doesn't have to come here, right? And you know, it's, just, you know, some businesses can't just move here. And especially to the extent that it's a real business with other employees there and product there, and maybe even, you know, an office or a storefront or whatever it is. So a lot of that, especially during the first 10 years is not going to be taxed here, sometimes even the profit you're making on it. Anyway, and without getting too specifics and knowing the exact nature, even of your business, you know, so it's hard to give the specific advice, but it's really important to really make sure you have an accountant or a tax attorney, but usually an accountant is enough that understand your situation. And maybe structurally, there's a change to make. Maybe you had one entity, one type of entity there. Maybe it'll be different. Maybe you'll have one here. Maybe you, know, you work out a lot of the details, but it's a real consideration because tax, like I said earlier, is sometimes like the hidden cost. It's not out of pocket, but it could be really important. Impactful. And the more money you make, the more, the higher the tax rates get here and they get higher than they get there. So you have to be careful, but there's a lot to do to optimize it, especially in the first 10 years. And, and even afterwards, there's some to do, but yeah, you don't have to be scared. You could have your business. If you think your business will work successfully when you're here, then you could still go on and tell your wives that either before or after Besos will, uh, you know, be coming. How does citizenship work, right? Assuming I'm from Milwaukee, my wife's from Toronto. When we move to Israel, does that mean we start the process of becoming an Israeli citizen? Can I opt out of that, but just move there forever? How does it all work? This gets a little bit complicated. The, the default for most people, when you make Aliyah, right? Nefesh Benefesh has made this infinitely more convenient and even, I would say, more possible for many people in terms of the process going through the bureaucracy. Everything that you need to apply for citizenship before you come, which entitles you to many of the benefits and the free flights and, you know, everything that comes with making Aliyah, when you become a citizen, you get a Tudatzalud, you're a card carrying member, you know, you know, in Israel. It's the default for most people who are moving here. There are people who want a trial. There's something called an A1 visa. It's not so common, so it could complicate things a little bit, but some people, it feels a little easier to call it a trial than to just jump in with two feet. The benefits are different and some of the paperwork is different. There are people who come trying it out as tourists, as students, you know, different arrangements. But, you know, you just have to, you know, there's a, there's a mindset question of, you know, how, you know, I don't know, practically to make it succeed. If you come in thinking, always looking over your shoulder, that might get, make it a little more complicated, but there's also just being part of the society and being, you know, having your kids enrolled and get, taking advantage of that cheaper tuition and healthcare. So if you're just here as a tourist, you might not exactly have all of those things. So what visa you're here on, and I'm not an immigration expert, but I would say the default for most people is you do the process before and FH Benefesh has a whole pro process. They help you with it, going through with the government agencies, getting the background checks, making sure that you're entitled to, you know, automatic citizenship as a Jewish person coming to Israel. And, you know, you make Aliyah, but there, there are other ways. Financially, I, I, I'm not really so sure. There could be, could be people have, you know, have figured out a system that maybe it's to their benefit not to become a citizen, but I haven't ever fully understood how that could legally be, although I'm sure there are some people that, that do it. But um, yeah, but there, there are options. But I think the default is you become a citizen when you step off the plane and you, uh, you get your 2.0. Let's talk about the languages for a minute. You know, Ellie was referencing before with, you know, your kids moving, and I think you, you probably had the benefit of moving when they were four and two. So even if they weren't particularly adept at languages, but you immerse them in a school and they kind of pick it up, what happens if somebody's not great at languages and they're older, their kids are older, maybe their kids aren't great with languages. How did you find it? And especially you're a professional there, so you're working with financial terminology. I would imagine that's mildly terrifying to have to 
sort of, you know, to, to, to do that and, and, and learn an entirely new professional language in addition to a casual language. So how does that work for you? How does it work for your kids? How do you see that working with like the average person who makes Aliyah? The earlier you come, the better it is for kids. But as it pointed out, you know, adults are people too. So we have to worry about our, uh, our languages. So I happened to have been fortunate that I, I was in a pretty Israeli or yeshiva that had a lot of Israelis. And I, I did have pretty fluent Hebrew. Like you said, when it gets into the professional aspects of it, I had to learn about certain terms and, you know, stocks and bonds and, and yields and dividends and P ratio. So that stuff in Hebrew is still challenging for me. Michael, I, I much prefer just to stick with the American stuff, but I, I do have to use those terms and it does, it is a little bit challenging. One bright side I would say is because so much of this country is immigrants, they're not all English speakers, but but there is a lot of non-Hebrew, there are a lot of non-Hebrew speakers here, especially in places like Jerusalem and Beit Shemesh, where there's so many Americans. So there definitely are people who just don't do it. They try where they're not good at it and they don't try, whatever it is. And you could get by. It's, is it easier if you know Hebrew? Yeah, it is. Everything from shopping to paying your electric bill and calling your cell phone company, and you know a lot of that is. But that being said, at places like you know places like Bechemish, you could you know you could go through many many days not having to speak Hebrew. You call the plumber. You call go to the dentist. You you have a handyman, and everybody's Olin. The children of Olin. You know, literally, I, I can't think of a single profession where I would need someone who who can't speak English here. But but not every city is like that, and not everyone's job is like that. So it, it is a challenge, but I would say even more and more as time goes on. First of all, there are also great apps and programs and opans that do help you learn any language, Hebrew included. So it's important to know those. But coming early is the biggest help, you know, for your kids. And then for adults, you know, like you said, some people are more or will be able to learn languages easier and some not. And the more professional, the the harder it is. But there's also specialized opan for medicine and for for things like that. But uh, it's an issue. But it's uh, but it's also one that there's so many English speakers that it's I would not let that you know show, someone shouldn't let that stop them from making aliyah. Yaakov, let's assume you've done a good job so far, right? You've warmed me up to the idea of of making the move, or at least having a conversation, or. I'm sure many people listening to this have had some sort of itch and they're listening because they're curious and they want some of their questions answered. But, you know, maybe they're single, they're 21 years old, or they're just not ready to make the move because their kid is in eighth grade. They want them to finish high school in America. Are there things that you recommend they start doing, whether it means starting to invest in a property, whether that means going on a website or having a conversation with an advisor to, to, to make some moves now, whatever that means, are there things that someone could do to set themselves up for, for moving success to Israel? And I'm avoiding that word because I'm going to butcher it. Aliyah. You do it great. Are there things they can do today to, to set them up for a better tomorrow? I have to say, I like to flip the, the perspective. I think everyone's default should be that this is where they're going to be. And if they want to stay there, they should think about how they're going to plan to stay there. You know, if they have a reason they can't come, you know, they should make sure they can afford to live in America. But no, but, but, you know, that being said, it really depends where, how far are you off? And I think it's an important, good question. I don't think I have a great answer, to be honest. I think the more you can do by language, especially if you have kids as they get older, 
it, it, nothing will compare to throwing them into the school where hopefully they have enough Hebrew speakers that they'll have to, you know, have to, to pick it up and kids you know, generally do. I do think financially preparing is important. You know, there used to be a joke, which I kind of like because it, uh, you know, puts a little bit of a negative spin on the Aliyah process. And that's a good way to make a small fortune in Israel is come with a large fortune. And you do think planning, you know, financially is important, knowing what you're going to do. Depending on how early someone is, there's certain industries here, you know, if someone is choosing, you know, in, you know, let's say high tech in particular programming, things like that. So if they're that early in their career, they could choose something. It's not that we don't have other jobs here that do well, but something like that happens to me. And there's a very, you know, significant world in the high tech world that, you know, that, that pays well and that, and that, you know, gives a lot of people financial success. I think most of it is just talking to people, getting comfortable, making sure that you're going to a community that will have an easy transition and to whatever you could do to prepare financially and language wise and professionally. I wish I had something more concrete, concrete. Maybe if I think of something afterwards, it'll come back to me, but I'm enough, uh, I'm enough what you could do. Just kind of jump in and uh, do it early and it should be the default. Say that again. I think, you know, Ellie's question is an important one. And I think maybe uh, the other side to that question that may, may, may fit a little bit more comfortably in your wheelhouse is what are the biggest mistakes people make when they make Aliyah and how do they, how can you avoid them? I think that planning financially is important and really knowing what you're getting into. Even the, the non-financial stuff also is important and some of it you won't be able to, you know, fully grasp until you get here. It has certain about, about the size of your house and how much less space and what it is to have one car instead of two and the educational system and all that stuff. But um, I think the more you can plan to know exactly what you're sacrificing and what you're getting, you know, is important. So when people come and it's important to them to own a house, but they don't have enough money to buy a house or people buy more of a house than they can afford or they buy enough more than they can chew. Unfortunately here, a lot of the mortgages are, are at least partially variable and then they're impacted by rising interest rates. So like just need to really understand the implications of what they're doing, of the taxes that are gonna, let's say they come with a good America job, but know when and come here, what the laws are, what tax you're gonna have to pay, what your, your mortgage is gonna look like. You know, thank God I don't see that many people you know, with huge mistakes that make them, you know, go back, you know, and make them have to do that. When they're here, I would say also a mistake is that in the employment system and the employment laws that employers have to give pension contributions and even put aside severance. And people really should try to understand what those benefits are. It's, it's significant amounts of people's compensation that are going into these type of retirement plans and they have fees and they have different investment options. And it comes back to some of the language issues we spoke about, or just everything about the challenges of learning a new system. And I think people should really try to understand, you know, not just the laws that say how much tax and where that to be taxed, but the benefits they get and not wake up 10, 15 years later, be close to retirement and realize that you weren't investing aggressively enough or you're paying too many fees and things like that. So it's really about having a plan, trying to have a certain sense of what your budget will be, what your housing situation will be, you know, that you have enough or that you're not biting off oil you could chew. And then the general financial planning that hopefully people are doing, like many of the episodes you've had of people teaching people how to plan for the future. So they need to adapt that to Israel because the system is different and they should come and not just say, oh, my employer, you know, I trust that whatever he's doing is fine. Even if that's true and your employer is not the one making every choice about your pension, they're just 
contributing somewhere. So you really have to be on top of those things. It doesn't mean obsess over it. It doesn't mean look at it every day. It means understand what's happening. Make sure you're not being taken advantage of. You're paying fair fees for what you're getting and doing things that are appropriate for your situation. And everyone's situation is different. So people should really try to learn about it or, or go to someone who can help them learn about, you know, those benefits and things. One big question that I think Zebby and I both have on our minds is what's the rate of failure, right? What percentage of people come back to America, go back to England as a result of their decision not working out for whatever reason? I really tried, and that's so surprisingly. Nefesh Nefesh has uh, not exactly published these numbers so openly on their websites. And I've tried to get information. I don't think they're withholding it. I think it's going to come eventually. I will say anecdotally, from many families that I've seen, whether it be Chemish or other parts of Israel, I think it's still pretty rare that people go back. And it's not to say that people don't have challenges and they don't think about it. And of the ones who I knew have gone back, there have been a lot of different reasons. And you mentioned earlier, sometimes certain children don't adapt the same way as other children and that they feel like it's you know worth it for that child or children to go back. It happens, some people, if they come here without so much family and all of their family is left in, in the UK or in America or Canada, wherever it is, and that it's not something that always you know, know in advance, how much will that impact me? And it depends, you know, some people's family come and visit all the time. And some people, you know, once they're here, especially if they can't afford to travel or for whatever practical reasons, families can go back and forth. So there are a bunch of reasons, including financial reasons, social reasons, family reasons, that it does happen every now and then. But I really think the overwhelming majority, really, really overwhelming majority stay. And I think most of them are actually very happy to stay. And I think the success rates are very high. And I'm trying to get more statistics on it, but I think uh, I think many stay. And I, I do think things like, you know, it could be it used to be financial pressures would, would push someone back faster, but how remote work has, has opened up so many more opportunities, I think that's actually probably helped, at least in that area. So many of you have donated to Kolel Chabad. They're helping Israel's poorest people get by with food and other ways to support them. Please help support Kolel Chabad, their nonprofit. They've been at this for over 225 years. They started in 1788. And regardless of age, ethnicity, religious observance, this organization is helping combat hunger daily. And they're doing it in partnership with the Israeli government and with the help from people like you. They have an army of volunteers. It helps helps keep the cost down. Um, I think they're helping now over 100,000 isolated seniors and they need our help. So visit kolelchabad.org slash koshermoney. The link is in the show notes. And help this wonderful charity support the neediest of Israel. Donate today. You can even make a recurring donation, a dollar, five dollars a week, dollar a day, whatever it is that you can give. It really helps out. We can't thank you enough. And now back to this week's episode. I'm curious, a question that uh, that Ellie asked before that I'd like to talk about for a second about preparing to make Aliyah and you know, to be honest, my you know my wife and I have sort of talked about it tangentially, and every time you know we go, we you know there's kind of like a moment where you know we we have this well maybe you know this is where we should be because it's always you know coming is such a wonderful experience, and you know one of the things that I think you said before really struck me, which is interesting, was that real estate costs almost never go down, which is kind of interesting because it's hard you don't you don't really find that yeah in 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 a lot of other places although in fairness and. In, in traditional Orthodox communities around the United States is kind of the same thing. 
right? The like, real estate just goes up. So I'm wondering, Ellie asked before, how do you prepare to go to Israel? So let's say we're not ready to go now. Let's say our kids are in school, our kids are happy, our kids are here, or whatever, you know, or whatever the business is here, or whatever the financial calculation is. Does it make sense for, you know, for somebody living in the States who maybe wants to start thinking about putting money towards, an, you know, a piece of real estate in Israel as, as an investment and potentially a place to land? Is that doable? It, it's doable. People do buy property here before they come. Some. I, I will tell you that the sooner you think you're coming, you know, less pressing it is to buy, which I specifically mean is because there are certain tax benefits, not just for new Olim, but for anyone that lives here. It's a little bit of an interesting that the way real estate purchasing and underwriting and, and tax works here is very different than there. But one of the important things, there's something called Masrichti Shop purchase tax. And as someone who's a citizen of Israel, you don't really pay it on the first 2 million shekel of house that you buy. So if you buy a 2 million shekel apartment, that's unfortunately not all that much you can get in many cities for 2 million shekel. You don't really pay this Masrichti Shah, this purchase tax, as opposed to if you buy something as a tourist or as a foreigner, it's pretty high tax. I don't remember if it's 5 or 8%. So that's a pretty significant thing. If you buy it and then you move here within two years, you could get it back. Again, you got to work it out with the real estate attorney, but it's definitely doable. You could buy it here and people who bought here many years ago, still don't live here, are very happy that they bought because the real estate is generally worth a whole lot more than when they bought it. You know, what exactly you do with it when you have it, you know, do you just have it for when you come visit? Do you turn it into an Airbnb? Do you rent it out long term? So it's a look the real estate here is a lot very different than it is in America. In other words, nowadays, especially with, you know, interest rates having come up so much, you know, maybe, maybe that'll help real estate prices come down. We don't know, but mortgage rates are high and, and your rent, you know, a lot of people in other parts of the world, they'll buy real estate and rent it out to get income. Here, the rental rates are often so low and now the mortgage rates are so high. It's, it's kind of hard to get a lot of income out of your real estate. So you're really doing it maybe because you want to move there eventually or because you believe that the values, maybe you have somebody who watched the reason or because you believe that the value is going to keep coming up. Uh, it's a little bit of a more complicated process than I understand it to be in America. I never bought a home in America. I did buy one here, but everything with from you know dealing with the bank to the amount we have to put down and all the paperwork and the whole process, it is a little more complicated. And it's another place where you probably have to use a lot of Hebrew. But they do have mortgage brokers who are English speaking and will take care of everything for you for fee. But they provide a service and they do it. So it's definitely doable, and people have done it and continue to do it and. They buy in Jerusalem, Beit Shemesh, Tel Aviv, Renana, everywhere. And, uh, you know, if that's what's going to help you get here, then go for it. Yaakov, where do your in-laws live? Where do your parents live? Your your siblings, your siblings-in-law, where, where does everyone live? My wife and I both come from big, uh, big families. There are nine children in my wife's family and eight children in my family. And my parents still live in Memphis, Tennessee. However, five out of the eight children are currently here. Four live here. One is kind of deciding. Some are actually in the process of moving different places, but you know, New York, Columbus, Ohio, one relocating to Orlando now. And then, you know, in Israel, we have Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, uh, Beit Shemesh, and another Jerusalem. So it's four. And then the fifth is still here. Going. Anyway, so we have four here. My parents still live in Memphis, Tennessee. They keep saying they plan on coming here more and more. Maybe they'll eventually be here more. My in-laws live in New York, in the five towns. My father-in-law was one of the first guests on your show, to be honest, for Reheshi Glass from the tuition crisis episode. Leave this in and take it out. Ellie, did you know that? No, I'm finding out all our guests are related. It was not a nepotism episode coming okay. in. I want to I make that clear. This was not 
something that we knew. Yeah, as I should have mentioned, but I should have disclosed that earlier. But yeah, so they live there. They come here often, and out of their nine, I think, oh gosh, I should know this, but I think five live here also. And then they have some New York, some Florida, and I think that's it. I think. So we ha- we happen to be blessed with a lot of family here. Some close by, and even you know, on my side, they're not in Beit Shemesh, but uh, but they're close to Jerusalem, Tel Aviv. That they come, we go there. Or whatever. So the reason I ask is because, you know, we're talking a lot financially, but emotionally, that that's hard, right? Especially if you're the first one in your family making the move, and your parents or in laws are, are are left back in America, and they need not have the means to visit annually and even only seeing your grandkids annually, assuming that you're able to see them more. If you're all living in the U.S., that's super difficult, right? So you have to have, in some ways, their blessing to to make that move. You have to be okay with the fact that your kids will only see their grandparents via Zoom or FaceTime for the most part. And, you know, I'm thinking back 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't even an option. So so it's come a long way. But it's, it's still not the same as having your four-year-old son sit on Zadie's lap by the Hanukkah party. How, how does that play a role into it? Because I do think for many people listening, it, it's not so much a financial decision as much as it is an emotional decision. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really significant point uh, for a lot of people whose families, you know, the easy answer is their family should come with them, you know, but it's not always practical. And I'll just add to the problem, especially as people, you know, as their parents get older, you know, depending on, you know, who's around where they live and, you know, they need care, you know, you know, or, or help, you know, you know, everyone could get medical assistance and care, but they need, you know, sometimes it's not the same you want family there. It, it definitely is complicated. But I know from clients or people that I know here who's had family, unfortunately, not well, and that it really, it really, really could get difficult. I think when you mentioned, you know, in terms of nowadays technology, it does make it easier, but like you said, it's not the same and it's a challenge. So we happen to be very blessed that we have a lot of family here and that our parents are able to come as they get older. I don't, you know, it's, if they're not here permanently, it's definitely going to be harder. I mean, everyone should live and be well and be healthy, but it's complicated. I would say more people coming, the better and the more they could get them to. And I, but I realize it's not always practical for everyone. You know, I'm not sure, you know, what else there is to say about it. And then, yes, you're right. That's a really, it's a really significant issue. You know, I was talking to someone literally last night who was going to America for Pesach, you know, and said he hasn't gone back in four years. Obviously, it was COVID and things like that. But the point is his, his kids have cousins that they've never met, and my kids also do. And, you know, maybe they met them on FaceTime, but that's, uh, it's, it's, it's part of the challenge. It's a sacrifice. And we would love for them to come here you know, until that happens, we do have to, we've settled for, for FaceTime and Zoom and, you know, and, uh, and, and trips. You know, there are people that don't even have FaceTime still nowadays. You know, there are people ideologically opposed or don't have internet at home and whatever it is. And for them, it's probably even, you know, more challenging and more and more that's, it's rare that they have nothing and no, no way to do it. At least they, you know, speak on the phone. Was it that long ago? You had to schedule a, an international phone call at the post office in Israel. So we've come a long way. But it's there's there's no question that that's a you know that's it's a challenge. Just as, as a segue there, just for a second, and I, I know this is probably a whole other podcast, but just out of curiosity, is is Israel a good option for retirees? Like somebody's looking for retirement, they're look everybody's moving to Florida. Maybe Florida's becoming a little, kind of ridiculously expensive. Is Israel a good option? Both you know for obviously spiritually, it's a wonderful option. You know financially, is are there ways to do it? Has Israel made it easy for people? To do. Yes, so it actually has. Uh, I think Israel, it's actually, you know, if someone doesn't make it here for whatever reason until retirement, they really should consider it in retirement. And there definitely are communities that are 
full of retirees that have a lot going on, you know, activities and socially and trips and all sorts of things, all sorts of help to make sure people get acclimated, all sorts of benefits, whether you're an OLED or not an OLED in terms of transportation and then all, you know, even, you know, there's like uh, something called Arnona as a municipal tax. There's all sorts of discounts for senior citizens. But financially, what I deal with a lot, you know, talk to your accountant before you do this, but Social Security as part of the U.S. Israel tax treaty is generally not taxed here or there. So you end up having a significant savings on your Social Security income. Like I mentioned earlier, there's certain tax benefits that apply in your first 10 years that if your retirement income is coming from passive sources like investments or real estate or things like that, very often you'll come out way ahead just with your tax bill and your take-home income. So I think many who come here, they benefit financially, as opposed to if you come through your working years, especially if you're making a lot of money, you might have to, you know, kind of lift through a higher tax rate. A lot of people benefit that way. That's as far as people coming here, you know, to retire here. It's also just important, I think, to mention, we've talked about a little bit that in the employment system here, so employers are required to give pension contributions and things like that. And, you know, and the idea is that people should be ready for retirement if they worked here as well, not just if they come retire here. You know, it's not perfect, not necessarily going to replace your entire income, depending on when you started working and how much you were putting away and how much you paid attention to those things. But I do think it's a good place to retire. Obviously, finding the right community, language, activities, you know, it's, I'd say, you know, people of like-minded, similar, you know, similar ideals and stuff like that as a port, but there's a lot of places within Jerusalem, Shemesh, you know, other cities. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't on someone's radar until then, it's a good time to get on the radar. How much do people in the conversations talk about safety, assuming that they live in America and they feel safe, right? Uh, removing and removing the, the the religious component of everyone should be in Eretz Yisrael, and they say when Mashiach comes, it will be a time when people are living in Yerushalayim safely and comfortably. Is that part of the conversation, especially where Israel's an open carry state, right? And and it, it, it's a little bit of a shell shock for those that are coming from you know, Teaneck, New Jersey, and saying, whoa, you know, is that part of the conversation or are, are most Americans pretty familiar with what, what goes on in Israel and they, they, they feel protected? It's maybe something in the back of their mind, but it's, it's not really people are, something that people are conversing about. I'd say it goes in ways. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there's always, you know, thank God most of the attempts and attacks they never even hear about, uh, you know, attempted attacks are, are thwarted and prevented by security forces and intelligence here in Israel, which is a huge deal. Like, that's a really important part. But things happen, and I would say it goes in waves. There are times, I remember when we moved here, you know, it was the middle of uh, a protective edge, and there was the three boys who were kidnapped. Like, there were intense feelings. You know, there's sirens and missiles, you know, not so much of HMish, but certainly people you knew, and a lot of people have an app that'll, like, buzz every time there's, like, a, you know, a red alert, you know, somewhere. When I moved also, it wasn't much after the, there was a Harnoff massacre, and it was, like, in a shul, and that people were, were would feel it, and, and parents get worried. And certainly, I know parents who are in America worried about kids here, and it's not uncommon in a family, you know, WhatsApp group to see, like, oh, there was a terrorist attack around the block, don't worry, we're all safe. Like, that's like a crazy text. So, yes, there was a, there was a terrorist attack, you know, shooting, whatever it was, rammings, you know, all these types of things. At one point, it was stabbing. It seems scary. I will say, unfortunately, since so much of the world has come like that and there's no shortage of stories, 
you know, in America also, if, whether it's on campus or in stores and things. So, you know, I think it's less of a reason for people not to come nowadays because you really can't escape it anywhere. But the answer is yes, it's, it's part of the conversation. And there are times where people or their families are fearful. You know, most of the time, certainly in Beit Shemesh, where, you know, Belia and are, we had real issues and please God will not, we should, they should stop everywhere they are. But most of the time, you don't feel it on a day-to-day basis, but it is part of the conversation that people feel scared, whether it's officially a time of war or just that there are attacks, especially in a recently, there have been things and they're not far away, you know, some in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, all those things. So it's, it's, it's something we can't ignore it, but we got to face it. And, uh, you know, the different takes on it, how to, you know, how to think about it spiritually, escopically, all these things, but yeah, it's part of the conversation and it's part of life, but most people don't walk around fearful. Like you said, walk around with a lot of guns, but, uh, they don't walk around fearful and they got, you know, we feel safe, I feel safe. Maybe we can see if we can wrap this up on a positive on, on a positive and on an inspirational note i really i wasn't expecting you to sort of go there in the first question so i kind of had to hear some of my last question i want to come back to what you said before about how important it is and how you know i, I love how you kind of said well that's got to be the default is that everybody's coming here and everybody else and you know to be honest that you know it's found that way in the sources also where if people are living outside of israel they have to have a good reason for it it's okay but you have to have a good reason for it. And so can you just like wrap up with a little bit of inspiration of the positivity, both from your family, some of the things that you've seen? I think certainly we want this episode to be an encouraging one. And even though we have, it has to be a realistic one, but it also has to be encouraging. So, you know, how, how would you sort of take us out on, on a high note, if you will? I'll start with the fact that, like you said, it has to be realistic and there are real sacrifices. And there are certain things that, you know, we don't want to harp on too much, but things like customer service, there's just a different feel when you're here than you're there. And your house is smaller and the educational system is different. We didn't talk about that much, but we could talk about a different time. And you have to be more proactively communicative and worried about, you know, your kids' education and things like that. There are good systems, there's good schools, but you have to do more. And there's a lot that you sacrifice. But at the end of the day, you know, people are happy here and they're happy they came here. And I think the real reason we could do studies and ask them, but they're happy with us because they know that they're doing the right thing. There's no real English word for aliyah, but it, you know, it means to, to go up. What does that mean? All right. So yes, you know, Israel is higher up, you know, elevation than most of the rest of the world. Okay. We could discuss, you know, where that's true, where it's not true. But the bottom line is it's a move up and it's a move to where things are happening. And like we said before, you know, where Jewish history has happening, is happening, has happened, is happening, and, you know, will continue to happen. And even though, you know, you, you need a plan, we have to do our ishtablis, we have to plan appropriately and, and, and make sure we come with flexibility, but with, uh, you know, but with, with being realistic about what it is. But, uh, but it is the place to be. And like you said, it's, uh, you know, fully supported in, in, in very many, many sources that uh, it should be the default and, and people should try it. And if, if they haven't been here a long time, come visit. I mean, the country changes so much every couple of years. It's not just the new roads and buildings and bridges. It's just like you see it in front of your eyes. It's building and building and building. And yes, that comes with a lot of dust and a lot of expense and a lot of other things. But it's 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 home. Hopefully that message will will resonate and, and your listeners and people you speak to will realize that it's realistic financially for many. And if it's not, so I'm not, you know, don't do something irresponsible. But it's it's doable. People are happy here, they're satisfied, and it's not without sacrifice, but it is with reward. A few lightning round questions just to to wrap this up. 
Yaakov, is, is there a place in Eretz Yisrael that you and your family love visiting, right? A Chalamot trip, some, some secret about the Holy Land that, that you think more people should know about? My wife likes to go a lot of places. Uh, I like to stay home, but we do go. No, we do go, and we like uh, going around. There are so many hikes and, you know, places we go, water hikes and, and mountains. I don't have this specifically. We go to the old city, and we like it, old city in Jerusalem. And, you know, we don't go enough, but we go. There's so many. I wish I had a better answer for this, but there are so many places, especially for someone who knows, I don't know well enough, but Tanakh, the history of all the places and you could see so much of wherever they was gosh i wish i had a better one next time i'll listen to more podcasts i know you're lightning around besties is there a food that you cannot get in israel that you miss in, in america is it a restaurant is there something you know it's not all roses right tell me about something you miss in our land that we're going to make your land our land but is there something in america that you're like hey guys you don't really appreciate you have a and you can't really get too much of that in Israel. Yeah, so I, I don't think it's a food, but you know, you mentioned earlier there's family for people to have it. To be honest, it took me a long time to stop missing, and I still miss Costco and, and Amazon to its fullest experience. I mean, it, there's just it, the, the shopping experience here, groceries, and that is it sticks. I mean, I'm just to be honest with that. And like, thank God there are now, I mean, I, I could tell you, but just like when you get here and like, you know, someone's behind you in line, like trying to be nice to like, oh, I, you know, I have fewer things from you. Can I go in front of you? Like things that would never happen to you in America is just like bizarre. And, you know, going to a place like Costco where you feel like everything's the price and high quality and they stand behind it and you get out of the store quickly. I missed that experience. I still miss it sometimes. But, uh, and Amazon, you know, there's no same day delivery. There's no free returns. There's no all that. So I miss that customer service. It's an opportunity for someone to come and bring it here and make money on it. Ellie, do you think Jeff Bezos listens to these? I think they'll get there. I mean, they're very tech forward. I think it's only a matter of time. I, I would imagine in five, 10 years, that that's a thing of the past. They do. They, you could get a little bit here. You could send certain things here. It's better than it was when we got here. But I've written in, I've written Costco. I'm trying, we're working on it. Sometimes they answer, sometimes they don't. With Costco, they answer, but they said they're not coming yet. Yeah, but what's the best way for someone to get in touch? Someone has a follow-up question, screaming at their phone right now because we didn't ask A and they want to, hit you up with an email, is an email, a phone number, a WhatsApp, a website. Uh, what's the best way to get in touch? Sure. So they could, uh, welcome to email me. Uh, you can you know, post it in the notes, but it's Yaakov, Y-A-A-K-O-V at Labinsky.com, L-A-B-I-N-S-K-Y.com. We also have a website, Labinsky.com, where you could you know, reach us through the website, phone number, email, all of that stuff. And they're welcome to send messages. I try to I try to respond to the, relatively quickly. I'm happy to to help, to have conversations with people, to see if there's a way you could answer their questions, facilitate their aliyah, or any other financial matters. I think we should also say that uh, Nefesh Benefesh, which is an organization that you mentioned multiple times, is the place to go for all of the details and the primary facilitation of Ali. I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that, Ellie. We should put it in the show notes as well. And I just, I have a question for Ellie. Um, Ellie, are you making aliyah? So I think that ages don't allow it, especially given that that ship has sailed. My oldest is 12. We're making a bar mitzvah. You know, I think we're a little bit too baked in. But I do think that if we do go, my wife will be the driving force. Really? You know, a lot of the questions that I asked were questions that I naturally wanted to ask in this conversation, right? There's 
you know, safety concerns, there's emotional, there's family, work, even though I don't have the money for it. For me, it's not as much a financial decision as, as much as it is an emotional decision. But if, if that was to happen, it would probably be after the, God willing, the kids are married, we would probably make the move then. But it's going to be one of those things that I need to think about over the next 15 years and let's revisit it then. And if Mashiach comes first, boy, are you going to be calling Yaakov fast? <laughs> Yaakov, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate your insights, and we can't thank you enough. Okay, thank you both. Uh, really, it was a pleasure, and uh, any uh, follow-up that you or anyone else has, happy to, happy to be in touch further. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Kosher Money. I'm your host, Yaakov Langer. Psych! I'm Ellie Langer, and my brother has a podcast called Inspiration for the Nation, but it's probably not as good as our podcast. So give him some listens. He's sitting right here. He needs them. He needs the listens. He's on YouTube, same channel, Living L'Chaim. But with all seriousness, we'd like to thank our sponsors, approvedfunding.com slash kosher money, Infinity Land Services, ilstitle.com, and kolalchabad.org slash kosher money. All the links are in the show notes. We have our links for Nefesh Benefesh. We have Yaakov's links, the other Yaakov from the episode um, from Lubinsky Financial. Thank you to our friends at Mishpacha. If you want to see write-ups and bonus content, visit mishpacha.com or pick up and or pick up a fresh magazine. Thank us later. Thank you to our friends at Living Smarter Jewish. If you're looking for a financial coach, someone who can help you along the way, if you're stuck you have credit card debt and you're like, this is terrible. Don't despair. Help is over there at livingsmarterjewish.org. Thank you to our friends there. And we now have a hotline. So if you do not have access to the internet or cousin Nachum, who lives in Lakewood, does not have the internet or your grandmother who's driving her Tesla and she has no access to the internet, there's a phone number we're going to put in the show notes. And you can call it and listen to episodes from the comfort of your own car, home, wherever. We also have a hotline for the UK. Um, we have a hotline in Israel you can call in. Um, all those phone numbers might not be in the show notes, but you can check out the phone numbers in Inspiration for the Nation. I am Ellie Langer. We have now 50 episodes, 5-0 episodes in the books. That's crazy. We've done so many episodes and we still have so much more to cover. So if you have a suggestion for us, someone who you think should be on the podcast, but it's not you, we don't want you to suggest you. If you want you to come on the episode, you need to have your friends. No, we know when it's your friends. Also, especially when we get like four to five names, the same name over and over. We know that this guy's asking his friends, Um, but we see right through that. Thank God. Thank you so much for listening to this outro. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Yaakov. Thank you behind the scenes to Michal. Thank you to everyone. Have a great day, great week, great Shabbos, great week, great month, great year, great century, great decade, great life. I'm leaving now. Bye-bye. Living L'chaim.